So this morning, uh, we start a little three-part series. It's called Say What? And you get that, right? Uh, say What is a, maybe a little bit more modern expression of uh, somebody saying, you got to be kidding me, right? And um, if you were a Chicago Cubs fan a couple of years ago, and you got stranded on a deserted island before baseball season started, and after season ended, you got rescued, and you asked somebody, hey, who won the World Series this year? And they said it was the Chicago Cubs. And you go, say what? You wouldn't be able to believe it, right? It's crazy. And so for this morning and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Statements that Christians make that a non-Christian, an unchurched person hears that and they go, say what? What does that mean? What is that about? So in, in three weeks, we're going to be uh, talking about this little phrase that, that Christians use. They say, come with me to church. And to an unchurched person, asking somebody to come with you to church, it's like doesn't make sense. Say what? What is that about? And next week, we're going to be looking at God won't give you more than you can handle. That's another phrase that Christians are quick to throw out. And to a non-Christian, they're like, oh, I don't get that. Say what? And so today, we're going to be looking at the first one of these, which is everything happens for a reason, right? It's a famous thing that Christians say. Everything happens for a reason. To a non-Christian, they're going, say what? I don't get it. Because if a person were to say that, and a non-Christian hears that, they might be inclined to think, well, does that apply to me too? Does everything happen for a reason for me, even though I'm not a follower of, of God? And, and then they begin to wonder. They begin to question. They're like, well, I, I know a guy at my work. His wife died from cancer. Was that God's plan for her? Did God want her to die? Or they might think, somebody might think, well, I have an aunt who lost a son in a car wreck. Was that God's plan for the son? Is that really what God wants to do? Or somebody else might say, hey, I know somebody that, that, that lost a baby after six months. Six months old and the baby got something and died. Was that God's plan? How is that God's plan? And if we, as Christians, are going to say everything happens for a reason uh, and, and, and just kind of throw it out there like that, we've we got to recognize that that is really challenging for someone who hasn't been around the church, who doesn't understand some of the things about God. So we've got to unpack it a little bit today. And, and that's what we're going to be doing the next couple of weeks is unpacking some of these phrases that, that people like to throw around. And, 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 and it's, it's one of those things that, that sounds biblical. Everything happens for a reason. And, and what we mean when we say that is to a Christ follower, somebody who is a Christian, we believe that, that yeah, that because God cares for us and, and influences our lives, that, that even in things that are hard, God makes them for good. Therefore, the reasoning goes that if, that if everything happens for a reason, it means that everything happens to you as a part of God's plan. And while this is a well-meaning phrase, it's problematic for somebody who is not a Christ follower. And this gets usually abused pretty uh, regularly around uh, when somebody, some, some, somebody dies. Everything happens for a reason, people like to say, around that time. Uh, I know of a pastor who tells a story, true story, about a, a woman who was leaving his church one day. She's walking down the steps out of the church. She fell and broke her hip. The next day she had surgery on her hip, and two days later, because of complications and stuff, she died. And so the pastor goes to the visitation Prior to the funeral, he's standing next to the husband, the grieving husband who's just lost his wife, and these well-meaning Christians come up to him and say things like this. God must have had a plan for this, so just accept it as God's will. 
Or another one says, somehow God planned this to test your faith. And another one said, there's a silver lining in every cloud. You will find God's reason behind it eventually. And what people are saying when they say those kinds of things is, is variations of everything happens for a reason. But the, you got to push them a little bit and begin to recognize that really what they are saying is, God planned for your wife to die. And God planned for your wife to die this way. And to an unchurched person, to a non-Christian, it makes absolutely no sense at all. In fact, we could push it a little bit further and say, why would that person, why would a person who's a non-Christian even want to explore who God is or what God is about uh, if, if that's the kind of God that you guys love? It's a challenge for us. And that's why it's one of the most abused or misused phrases that Christians throw out there regularly. Now, 138 years ago, I took a philosophy class in college. And one of the things, maybe the only thing that I remember from that philosophy class was that, that people have a way that they reason things. It's a proposition. Proposition one is A equals B. And proposition two is B equals C. And then, then you come to the conclusion, which is, therefore, A must equal C. And we get that. It makes sense. It's a reasonable thing to think about. But what we got to recognize is that that works really well for mathematics, but it doesn't work so well when you're talking about emotional issues, spiritual issues. It's not as clear-cut as we'd like to think. In other words, for someone to see things differently than they do, you have to go back to the propositions that they're basing what they're saying uh, about what are the supporting propositions and and for some of us sometimes we say things that are based on propositions that are not really accurate and everything happens for a reason is one of those kinds of things let me use a different example if you were talking to somebody who absolutely loved donald trump or you were talking to somebody who really didn't like donald trump at all and you were going to try to convince them to change their minds first of all i wouldn't try to go there because you're probably not gonna have any luck doing it right but let's be clear that in order to do that, you've got to go and attack some of the propositions that they're basing their decision on. You've got to help them see that the way that they're thinking is a faulty way of thinking. And so we've got to get to those propositions. So when it comes to everything happens for a reason, the reasoning behind it goes something like this. God has a plan for our lives. The Bible makes it very clear. God has a plan for your life and my life. And God makes lots of promises to us. The Bible, there are many, many promises about our lives. One of them comes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. It says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And we would say, a Christian would say, a Christ follower would say, this is true also. And since God has made us this promise, the only logical conclusion we could come to is that God will protect us in all things. Therefore, anything that happens is part of God's plan. That's the way the reasoning goes. But the challenge with this is that it sounds accurate according to what the Scripture says, but it's close, but it's not absolutely clear. So let's think about the proposition behind it. The first one, of course, is that God has a plan for your life. And I've already said, I believe the Bible makes it very clear. God does have a plan for your life. Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul says it this way, Instead, we are God's accomplishment, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. Or maybe a more familiar one to you is from Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, I know the plans I have in mind for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for peace, not disaster, to give you a future filled with hope. Yes, God has a plan for our lives. God has a purpose for our lives. And once we accept that, believe it in faith, that this is what God has in mind for us, then we see that we are capable of doing amazing things because we believe God is leading us in amazing directions, doing things that we thought were never possible. There was a study done a few years ago by prestigious Stanford University where they tested 900 people. They asked 900 people a series of questions. And what they found through the study was that just thinking about God has a powerful impact on people's willingness to take a risk, to do something that they wouldn't have done otherwise because they believed that God would provide security against negative outcomes. Think about that. They were just thinking about God. These were people not were, were, that weren't filled with faith. They were just thinking about God, and they believed that God was going to protect them. God was going to provide for them. God was going to show them a way against negative outcomes. People not driven by faith, just thinking about God, believed that God was going to be there for them. And since he was there, they felt more certain, more willing to take risks in life that they would have otherwise considered. Now, maybe you've heard a motivational speaker or maybe a great TED Talk along the way somewhere, and, and they posed a question to you that might be familiar to you. The question is, what would, you do, what would you do if you believed you could not fail? What would you do if you believed you could not fail? The Stanford study essentially says, if you believe God approves of your dream then you're more likely to take a shot at doing it because you believe God will have your back. And Scripture even supports that idea. It goes one step further. In Scripture, God essentially says, not only will believing I've got your back make you more confident, but if, you plan, if what you plan to do is my will, then I will have your back. I will be there for you. Our faith in God's faithfulness makes us live our lives in an expectation of the fact that he has a plan for our lives and it's going to be exciting. Our faith provides for us excitement about the future. It's a little bit like Christmas morning when you were a kid. You get around the tree and you got all those packages in front of you and you don't know what's in the packages or, or at least you're not supposed to know what's in the packages, right? And, 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 but there's excitement. There's anticipation about what's getting ready to happen, getting ready to reveal all these things that you cannot see. And the Bible teaches us that that's the way we're supposed to live our lives, based on our faith, not on our ability to see things. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. He said, we live by faith, not by sight. So when we do this, when we live as those who believe God has a plan for us, when we live as those who believe God has the power to put that plan into effect, when we step out in faith to do those things that don't make sense, then we are living, as the Bible tells us, we're supposed to live by faith and not by sight. And another way of saying this would be to say that an attitude of faith will succeed even in the face of facts. Think about that a moment. An attitude of faith will succeed even in the face of facts. Think about 
some of the personalities from the Bible, some of the individuals that were convinced that God had a plan for their lives, were convinced that God had power in their lives, and if they followed the plan that God had put out there for them, that God would accomplish amazing things. Think about Moses when he faced the might of Pharaoh in Egypt. Here he was, a shepherd. What did Moses have in his hand? He had a staff. And, and if, if, you'd have, if you'd have gone to Moses and said, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going I'm to convince Pharaoh to let my people go. You'd go, say what? You know, that just makes no sense at all. You, you got this staff, or you're going to go convince mighty Pharaoh that, that, to let the people go? There's no way that would happen, but it did. When David faced Goliath, what did David have in his hands? He had five stones and a sling. That was it. And if you were to go to him and say, hey, what are you getting ready to do? He said, I'm going to go slay that big man over there. The, the head of the Philistine army looks like a giant of a man. I'm going to take him down. And, and you say, what are you going to take him down with? He said, well, these five stones and this slingshot. And you'd go, say what? It doesn't make any sense at all. But he did because God had a plan. And God was behind that plan. Think about Gideon and the 300 soldiers that he had to go up against, 135,000-person army. Think about those kinds of odds. 300 against 135,000. And oh, by the way, what did Gideon have? They had trumpets and they had torches. And they're going to beat 135,000 people. But they did because, because, because Gideon believed in what God was doing. God, Gideon believed in the power of God. Each of these individuals, and you find it again and again in the Bible, each of these individuals are people that believe that God is bigger than what is in front of them, bigger than the enemy that is facing them. And there may be some enemy that you're facing right now. Oh, it might not be a person. It could be a health issue. It could be a financial issue. It could be a relationship issue. There may be a, a big enemy that you're facing right now. You're wondering, how can the world can I overcome this? Hey, friends, let's remember today. Let's celebrate today that God is in the business of helping us overcome whatever is going on in our lives. So when you and I believe God has a plan for us and has the power to back that plan, and if that plan is according to the will of God, then we really can't lose. It's a win-win proposition. And we would say that the truth is that God has a plan for your life and, and that this goes hand in glove with this idea that God has all these promises that God gives to us. The scriptures are filled with promises from God. And one of the most famous and beloved promises of God is Romans 8, 28. And it says this, We know that God works all things together for good, for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. It says, God will work for the good for those who love him. And how many things will God work? It says, in all things. It sounds a little bit like everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? But think about it with me. Think it through with me for a moment. Is the verse saying that all things are good? No, not saying that. Is it saying God caused all things to happen? No, not saying that. What it is saying is it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter what happened in your life, whether it was caused by God or not. God has the ability to take whatever happens in your life and make good come out of it. And that's what this promise is all about. No matter what happens with Jesus in your heart, you can conquer all things through Christ. Now, I don't believe that Everything that happens in this world happens for a reason. Unless you're willing to say, I, I believe that people make bad decisions. 
And, or maybe you'd be willing to say people sometimes make stupid decisions. Maybe you'd even go so far as to do that. Anybody here ever made a stupid decision in their lives? Remember the story of Cain and Abel? These brothers brought offerings to God. And the scripture tells us that God rejected Cain's offering. How did he respond? Cain killed his brother. Now, was this God's will that he kill his brother? Or who made that decision? Did God cause it to happen? Go forward a couple more centuries. We get back to Moses. The people of Israel have been led out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They get to the promised land, the land that God had promised them centuries before. And here they are ready to enter the promised land, and they decide, we're going to send 12 spies out into the land to survey things and make sure that it's okay for us to go in and we can occupy the place. So the 12 go back, go out, and then they come back and they give their report. Ten of them, ten of the people that come back, ten of the spies that come back say, hey, there's no way we can take those people. In fact, the scripture says that they called themselves, the Israelites, the spies said, we're, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. They are gigantic people. We could never take them. But two of those that went out were faith-filled. They believed in the power of God. And then when they came back, they reported, hey, it is bountiful out there. It is beautiful out there. It is amazing what can happen out there. Let's go take it because God has said, we need to go do this, and we're ready to go. But if you know the story, you know what won the day. Fear won the day. The people became afraid, and because they became afraid, they backed away, and they said, oh, we can't do this. And because of that, God's wrath came down upon them and said, you're going to have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness because of your unbelief, because you didn't have the faith that I could do what I told you I was going to do. You're going to have to wander for those 40 years. A few centuries later, we read about King David of Israel. He sees from his rooftop a beautiful woman that's bathing in a nearby courtyard, he sends some of his servants to get her, and he commits adultery with her. Was that God's will? Did God cause that to happen? No. Sometimes bad things happen because people make bad choices. Sometimes bad things happen like cancer because we live in a fallen world. But God says, it doesn't matter why something happens. I can make all things work together if you love me and are called according to my purposes. And being called according to God's purposes has simply to do with you and I getting up every single morning and saying, God, I want to follow you today. The first thought in your or my minds when we get up in the morning ought to be, oh my goodness, not what a horrible day this is going to be, but the first thing on our minds ought to be, God, you are Lord of my life. I'm going to follow Jesus today. And because I'm going to follow Jesus today, I'm looking forward to whatever's coming my way today. We have to decide every single day that we're going to follow Jesus again today. Look what Paul says a few verses earlier in Romans 8, verses 17 and 18. He says, but if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. If we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. It says, as a Christian, you're going to suffer. You will suffer as a Christian. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus himself said it. And suffering isn't always going to be a part of God's plan. Sometimes we suffer because of decisions we've made. 
And sometimes God sends trials our way that may cause some suffering in our lives because God is trying to correct us, trying to get us back on the right path. Sometimes suffering happens just because we live in a fallen world, because sin is in this world. And everything happens for a reason. That phrase, this mindset, ends up blaming God for a lot of things that that God didn't do. Now, some of you aren't old enough to remember this, but there used to be a comedian named Flip Wilson. And Flip Wilson, one of his famous phrases was, the devil made me do it, right? And the devil has gotten a lot of a lot of things heaped on him uh, for, for causing this or that that should have been taken responsibility for by somebody else. We like to blame somebody else, uh, but let's remember that God isn't in the business of making bad things happen to us. God doesn't cause bad things to happen that bad people do. What God does do, and this is what is critical, with Jesus in your heart, I've said it once or twice already, what God does do with Jesus in your heart If we're teachable, God uses things that happen in our lives to show us the right path on which to live. Now, by example, think about being a parent. When you have a little kid, a little child, and and, and you're you're in the kitchen and you're making some spaghetti for dinner and you put a big pot of of water on the stove to boil and you go off to the other room to, to get something or do something, go to the bathroom, whatever, and you come back and you see your little kid has pulled up a stool by the stove. And just as you round the corner, they're putting their hand up, getting ready to touch that pot because they're curious about it. And you, being the great parent that you are, you yell at them. And the sound of your yell is something that they don't hear very frequently. There's an urgency to it that, that you want them as a parent to always remember. You may say something like, don't do it or stop or I'm going to kill you or something like that. I'm being facetious there, okay, right? But you get the idea, and when you do that, by the time you get to them, because they've halted, because you've shocked them, because of your voice, the volume of it, and the tone of it, when you get over there, a good parent, in my opinion, whacks them on the bottom. And the reason you whack them on the bottom is because you want them, the next time they go to reach for that boiling pot, you want their bottom to remind their head what happens when that happens, right? When that's going on. It's a way of reinforcing the teaching that you're trying to give them. And parents, we're trying to teach our children to go the right way to keep them from harm. But when our children get a little bit older, and when they become teenagers especially, some of you might remember what it's like to be a teenager, right? And sometimes I'm told teenagers can be a little bit stubborn. Anybody know any stubborn teenagers, right? Uh, So when you get to be a teenager, you're not going to be disciplined very well by swats on the bottom or saying, no, don't do that. You've got to use a different tact. And what happens then when your kids are older, when they make a mistake, when they suffer because somebody hurt them, whether it was an emotional thing or a physical thing, they suddenly become more teachable. They suddenly become willing to listen to you as a parent. You might be able to say, don't hang out with that kid. And you know as a parent that the reason you're telling them don't go hang out with that kid is because you understand, you know from knowledge that you have uh, uh, separately that that kid has no boundaries. And when you have no boundaries, you're looking for trouble. So you tell your kid, don't hang out with that kid, but your kid knows better, so they keep hanging out with them, and eventually they get hurt. And when they get hurt, now they're open to receive some teaching. And the teaching that you as a parent can give them in that moment is teaching that they will carry for the rest of their lives because they're open to hearing what you have to say. 
And that's, in my opinion, that's just like what God does with us. When things happen that are hard or difficult or painful, that if we're teachable, if we're willing to allow God to breathe life into us and listen for God's voice in the midst of those challenges, then God uses those bad things that happen for good to help us grow in the right way. Think back to the part of King David's story again. In retrospect, standing here at where we are in, in the course of time, if you look back at the history of Israel, if you were to study the history of Israel, you would find out that David is revered as a great king. But he, he wasn't always a great king. He learned to be a great king. He was in retrospect, a righteous man. If you want to know whether or not he was a righteous man, go read the Psalms, because the Psalms are filled with this incredible wisdom that will show you that, that David was a righteous man. He became a warrior and a great leader. Not only did he face and kill the giant Goliath, after he became a king, he led armies against all the enemies of Israel. Engagement after engagement, battle after battle, David was leading the charge. Then the Bible tells us that one day, David didn't go out into battle. He stayed home and watched the Bed and Bath Channel from his rooftop. And, and the Bed and Bath Channel was going on in the courtyard outside. And there was Bathsheba. And as you've already heard me say, David saw her and she was pleasing to his eyes. So he sent some of the servants to go get her. And he brought her to his chambers and he slept with her. He had a good time based on what the Bible says to us. In fact, you kind of get the impression that maybe it wasn't just a one-night stand. Maybe it was a several-night kind of stand. And eventually, uh, Bathsheba comes to David one day and says, Hey, guess what, honey? I'm pregnant. And now, David is faced with a pretty serious problem because Bathsheba is a married woman. And if it's found out that she has slept with the king, the king would lose a lot of prestige from the people that are supposed to be following him. And oh, by the way, that would be bad, but worse for Bathsheba because the law said that if you were an adulterer and you were a woman, you should be stoned to death. Bathsheba could have easily been killed if they found out about what was going on between the two of them. So David devises a plan. While he's been hanging out with Bathsheba, her husband, Uriah, has been on the front lines fighting the battle for David. And David knows that, that because Uriah hasn't been around, he hasn't been able to have sex with her. So David sends for her husband, Uriah, and Uriah comes back under the pretense that he wants to make Uriah a messenger of David. Now, David suggests when Uriah comes back from the front, he kind of suggests to Uriah, hey, why don't you go and hang out with your wife for a little while? And you get it, right? Wink, wink. You know, he, he's trying to get David to go sleep with his wife because he knows that his wife is pregnant. But Uriah isn't aware of this. But Uriah is a righteous man, the Bible says. And because of that, he says, no, I, I can't go hang out with my wife because I've got all these guys up on the front that are fighting this battle. It would be wrong for me to enjoy the pleasures of home life while these men are out in battle fighting. So Uriah sleeps on the door of the palace, which makes things even dicier for David. So David does put a message together, and he sends Uriah back up to the front lines to give this message to the general. 
And the message to the general was, when he opened it, the general reads it, and it tells him to send Uriah to the front lines. And once Uriah is engaged in battle on the front lines, pull all your other men back so that Uriah would be killed in battle. So the general does. And Uriah is killed in battle. So David, at least it appears, succeeds in covering his tracks. Now nobody will know that he and Bathsheba have committed adultery, and he's free to take her as his wife. He got away with it. Until one day, there's a knock at the palace door, and it's a prophet of God named Nathan. And he tells them that he has an urgent message for the king, an urgent message for David. He tells David this. He says, a poor man who had nothing except one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb. It grew up with his family, with he and his children. It even slept with them. It drank from his cup. He would hold it in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, this little lamb was. And Nathan goes on. He says, but next door to that poor man was a very wealthy man. And one day, the wealthy man has a visitor that comes from another country. And the wealthy man decides he needs to put on a feast for his visitor. And so instead of taking one of his own sheep or one of his own cattle that he had plenty of, he looks at his poor neighbor man and he says, I want that sheep. So he goes and he takes the little lamb and and he uses the lamb for the dinner that night. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 12, 5 and 6, David burned with anger against the man, and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said something that pierced David's heart. Nathan looked at King David and said, You are that man. You are that man. And David realizes in that moment that he has He has been disobedient to God. And David makes a different choice. In fact, if you were to look at the kings in Israel's history, David makes the kind of choice that you would have wished everybody would have made because they all had places where they stumbled and fell. But David does something different. He doesn't deny it. He owns it. He recognizes that he has done wrong, and he repents, which means he's going to turn away from the the sin that he's been engaged in, and he's going to turn back towards God. He repented, and because of it, he begins a new relationship with God. He's very, he's very, very convicted by it. He's, he's understanding that, that God has got to be demanding of him to repay, that there's got to be something that gives. He, he asked God for forgiveness. And if you were to go and look at Psalm 51, you would find that the whole of Psalm 51 is essentially God's request for forgiveness and, and, and to, to, to be forgiven by God for what he has done. Let me read just a little bit to you. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David sinned with Bathsheba. He had Uriah killed because of his lust for sex and for power. He made bad choices. But God took what David did, which was evil, which was not a good thing, and made it so that even this evil thing that was done could be turned into good because David humbled himself. Because David stopped making excuses for why he did what he had done and and stopped trying to hide his sin from God. He repented. Again, he turned away from his sin and back towards God, and it changed his life. God showed himself faithful and made it so that all things worked together for good, even these bad things. Romans 8, 28. Read it with me, would you? We know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe this? Anybody remember who the next king was after David? His name was Solomon. And do you remember what Solomon's mother's name was? It was Bathsheba. Think about that. David and Bathsheba engaged in behavior that they knew was wrong, that when they repented, when they finally allowed God to move in their lives in a significant way, that that God turned what was done wrong and turned it into something that is good. Look what God did there. You know, everybody in this room, everybody that may be watching at home, everybody needs to understand that part of why we are here as a church is because every single one of us has failed in this life. That, that we have this brokenness, this broken relationship between us and God because we're pride-filled. And that pride gets in the way of our relationship with God. It's something that the Bible teaches us again and again. Paul said it in Romans 3.23. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. If you're honest, would you be honest with yourself this morning? And recognize that you have fall, fallen short, that you have sinned before God? There's likely not one person in this room that hasn't done something that they're not really happy about. There's likely not one person in this room that, is, that hasn't done something that they're not proud of at all, that they wish they could just forget. But God can take what we've done and make good come out of it. God can take what we have done and provide reasons to teach us and that we would learn from it in the long run. You see, for a Christ follower, God takes everything that happens and brings good out of it. If you are a Christ follower, God takes everything and makes good come out of it. So the question I want to ask you to ask yourself today is, are you a Christ follower? And that doesn't mean, have you accepted Christ a week ago or 10 weeks ago or 10 years ago or 30 years ago? It doesn't matter when it occurred. But are you following Christ today? Not just, did you do it once, but are you doing it every single day? Because if you do it every single day, then God moves in your life and world in a way that only God can to bring good out of bad. And to begin it, We have to give our lives to Christ, and then we have to follow Him. So are you following Him? 
And the second part of what I believe Paul is trying to say to us is, not only are you following him, but are you teachable? Are you teachable? Are you someone who is willing to take God's correction in your life and to follow the lead of God? Because then God makes all things that happen to us turn for the good. What a great God we have that would do this for us. Amen? Let's pray. God, on this day, we humbly are reminded again that we are sinners. We are broken. That we do things that we know we shouldn't do. That we have done things that we know we shouldn't have done. And God, by the power of your Spirit today, we celebrate that you know how to take even those bad things and turn them for good. Things that happen that are destructive, that are hard, that are hurtful. God, we pray this day that our hearts would turn toward you and that we would be teachable so that we might listen to your voice and follow your leadership in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus, who came that we might live. Amen.